According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 22 is our starting passage today. Luke 22, continuing on in the preparation for the Passover. Uh, Dan, take note of the spelling on preparation. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't show up that way on the website. Okay. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right to our study, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. And Father, we recognize that this is entirely your grace. We, don't, we haven't earned this, haven't deserved this. We have no right to be here, Father. But you welcome us into your presence. You teach us from your truth, and we thank you for that. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. <laughs> a little distracting this morning, and we'll see if we can avoid any more traveling toilet paper salesmen, and we'll uh, get our class going here on time. Right. All right. Luke chapter 22, preparation for the Passover. I'm actually up here without notes today, so we'll just follow the slideshow and see where it takes us. We have the unnamed water carrier, the unnamed house owner leading Peter and John to the most famous upper room in the history of the world. And this is the setting for not only this episode, but most of the following episodes. Episodes 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. All in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. All of these events will take place in the same room. Observing Passover, uh, demonstrating foot washing, exposing and expelling the betrayer, introducing communion, the Lord's table, and then... Um, the upper room discourse that is the content of chapters 14, 15, 16, and the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. This is the final Passover of our Lord's first advent. He will be on the cross the next morning, the next day, from 9 till noon. Uh, Old Testament background on Passover we looked at under subpoint A from Exodus chapter 12. Uh, the record of the various Passover feasts throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ we looked at under point B. Jesus had previously observed uh, Passover several times, and uh, those are important passages that help to uh, give you the chronology of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then the problem that arises with the fact that the Lord and his disciples are observing Passover on Thursday night, and yet on Friday during the morning, the, uh, the priests, the Sadducees, are very uh, leery. They don't want to cross into the praetorium uh, because they want to keep themselves uh, from becoming ceremonially unclean and uh, in order for them to partake of the Passover. And so how do we reconcile that discrepancy? How is it that you can have Passover on Thursday and on Friday? How do you have Passover two days in a row when Passover is strictly on one day, on the 14th of Nisan? And so uh, the best solution to that is to reconcile that, uh, that there were some that observed uh, from a day-to-day, morning-to-morning reckoning of Nisan 14, and there are others that reckon from the sundown to sundown reckoning of Nisan 14. And so both were obedient, even though some uh, ate their meal on Thursday night and some ate their meal on Friday night. By the way they count the days, they were eating their meal. Uh, the, the lamb was slain on Nisan 14. All right. Point three. This night has been on the Lord's heart for weeks, years, even ages. And this is where we spent the bulk of our time last week from Luke 22, verses 15 and 16. 
when the hour had come, and I love that because we've had all these times for seven years now we've been reading in the Life of Christ series, his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. Well, now the hour has come. And he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired with lust. I have lusted with lust. I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, some people lust after women. I lust after books. Other people lust after other things. Uh, But Jesus lusted after being obedient to his heavenly father, even if it meant the anguish of, of spiritual death on the cross. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And this is uh, an observation I did not make last week, but I want to expand upon it this week and then wrap it up with some other things. And as I said, I didn't bring my notes with me today, so we'll just follow the slideshow and see where this goes. But we gave this to you under subpoint A, earnestly desired, epithumia epithumesa, with lust I have lusted. And the verb is epithumeo. And uh, typically it refers to, you know, sexual lust and, and the sinful lust that we're familiar with. But it's not always. It's not always sexual and it's not always wrong. And there are a handful of passages. I give you Matthew 13, 17, 1 Timothy 3, 1, Hebrews 6, 11, 1 Peter 1, 12, where you have the verb and it's used not in an improper sort of way. And so I think it's good if we are to learn the uh, if we that, that's her truck just driving in the driveway now. All right. If. um if we learn what the proper lusting is about, where we can long for the pure milk of the word, where we can lust for the right things. First Timothy 3.1, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he lusts after, that he epithumeo, that he intensely desires to do. And I think if the man does not have that lust, he's not going to last long in the ministry. The conflicts are going to hit and the discouragements and the, all the grumblers and fault finders. And the man just says, well, that's not worth this. Why, why am I putting up with all this? All right. And so uh, that that lust needs to be there in the appropriate way. And the other passages there, I don't want to repeat what we did last week, but that's what we were looking at. The play on words as well. So not only does he say, with lust I have lusted, there's the play on words there, epithumia, epithumesa. But then he goes on to say, to eat this pascha before I pasco. To eat this pascha before I pasco. The verb for suffering is the verb pasco, P-A-S-C-H-O. And um, not at all related etymologically, but it sounds uh, related. And so it's a, it's a play on words based on how it sounds to Pasca. Pasca is not a Greek word. Pasco is a Greek word uh, used going all the way back to Homer and early Greek writers. Uh, so it's a very well-known Greek word. But Pasca is not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word. And it comes through the Aramaic and then gets transliterated into Greek as Pasca. It was known in Hebrew as the Pesach. The Passover. All right. So there it is again. And uh, he's earnestly desired to eat this Passover before I suffer. This earnest desire did not just start today, did not just start this week, did not just start within the last year. You know, he didn't. But remember, a Passover a year ago was when he didn't go to Jerusalem. Passover a year ago was when he was up on the mountain feeding the five thousand. And that was the first that we have record of, the first Passover that he failed to make the pilgrimage, the, the ordered pilgrimage to Jerusalem to appear before the temple. Um, you know, was it from that moment for this following year then that he's earnestly desiring this? No, actually it goes back to the foundation of the world. The desire of the Lord 
was to accomplish everything the Father assigned for him to do. And this delight and desire was birthed from the foundation of the world. It forms the core of what it means to be God the Son, what it means to have to be birthed by the Father. Today I have begotten thee. And from the moment that God the Father birthed the human nature of Jesus Christ, God the Son, Jesus Christ, has been pleased to be pleasing to the Father, to obey the Father, to uh, continually seek the will of the Father. This includes, by the way, what do you think Jesus was doing when he created the universe? He was pleasing the Father by doing the work that the Father had given for him to do. All right, so right there in creation, that's why we're told in Romans 1 that creation testifies to the, the existence of God, to the glory of God and his nature. That's the role of, of Christ. Christ reveals the Father. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. And so we have the scriptures here. Proverbs eight thirty one, Psalm twenty two thirty one, Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Behold, I have come to do thy will, O God, a body thou hast prepared for me. Hebrews 10, verses 7 and 9. And Hebrews is the New Testament quotation of Psalm 40 there. All right. So let's just, before we move on, let me just, once again, let's remind ourselves of what Psalm 22 was about because this plays into the night in which he's betrayed. Psalm 22. And hopefully it'll orient us to our own testing and circumstances. So we don't become such negative Nellies when... uh, Faced with difficulty. I'm, I'm preaching to myself today. <laughs> All right. Psalm 22. And you understand. Um, because he endures the cross. This is the cross. A thousand years ahead of time. David prophesies it. He, he composes this psalm. He sings this. And, uh, and I, I have to believe that David himself was given a vision of the cross. That David himself was either brought forward in time or just given a vision Uh, somehow spiritually David was placed inside the skull of Jesus Christ while he hung on the cross. That David was hanging there and observed the cross from the first person. I think that Peter and John and the women, they observed the cross in the third person. They were standing at a distance and watching and weeping and so forth. I believe David hung on the cross and saw it from inside the eyes of Jesus Christ. And when he saw that a thousand years ahead of time, he wrote this psalm. And this is so uh, such a vivid description of what Jesus encountered while he was hanging there that um, to me it's a natural conclusion to, uh, to make. And yet, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. So what's the answer? The, uh, we just give up? We throw up our hands and say prayer doesn't work? No. We keep the faith. We keep asking. We keep going to the one who's faithful. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. See, if verse 3 is not there, then verse 2 is a grumble. If verse 3 is there, then verse 2 is a lament, and, and the Lord continues to stay in faith and continues to wait to see what the result is going to be. Uh, yet you are holy. You know, that says it all. Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to turn to in prayer? In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and you and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. In fact, we're told nobody who rests upon the Lord will ever be disappointed. That God is faithful. And we can appreciate that. And then uh, more of the description here of, of the uh, cross and being uh, mocked, being sneered, wagging the head. Commit yourself to the Lord. You get the very taunts that are coming to him by the uh, soldiers and so forth around Jesus on the cross right there. Yet, verse 9, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. 
This is interesting for David to say, but it's more interesting for Jesus to say. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast and the value you have when a young child actually starts learning the patterns of who God is and praying and so forth before they even understand um, that they need a savior. That's a, that's a huge advantage. So upon you, I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near. There is none to help. So we have the whole cross right here in Psalm 22. Now notice you get down here. He ends it with a save me. In verse 21, save me. You got deliver me in verse 20, save me in verse 21. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen or the unicorn. You know, if you got an old King James there, you, uh, you answer me. All right, now, this is how he closes it. And he expects, he hasn't seen the answer yet, but the answer is on the way. So now he starts talking about what he's going to do after the answer comes. He said, I will. Tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. He's already anticipating what the worship is going to be like in heaven. In the midst of the assembly. I think that my brethren emphasizes the humanity in the midst of the assembly represents the angelic beings there in heaven. And uh, both humans and angels alike are going to praise God. And we see that in Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five. Um. <clears throat> All right. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Now, what vows? What, now, I understand what happens here. Um, Jesus, in verse 22, says that he's going to praise the Father in the midst of the assembly. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Then in verse 25, is, this is now the Father singing back. Okay, This is one of these, they're called antiphony. They're called antiphonal, um, basically back and forth songs. Okay, you're familiar with songs like that. Somebody sings one part, somebody sings another part. Okay, um, you know, if we were a big fancy church, we'd probably do stuff like that with men singing the low stuff and the girls singing the high stuff and things like that. Well, this is a, this is a back and forth between the father and the son in this chapter. And a lot of people miss it. I think it's beautiful. Because Jesus says in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you speaking to God, the father. Now, in verse 25, the father says from you, Jesus, comes my praise, the father's praise in the great assembly, I, the father, shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Those who fear, I believe, Jesus in that context. Now, what vows is he talking about? What's going on here? What is it that Jesus accomplished in his victory on the cross that was attached to patrological vows? What was the covenant from the foundation of the world between God the father and God the son? All right. When the father put forth a plan, but was not going to coerce God, the son, God, the son had to be in agreement with that plan to do it volitionally. And of course, the Holy Spirit in agreement as well. It's called the counsel of his will. So. Uh, the father's made a number of vows, hadn't he? I have sworn by myself, he says, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I have sworn by myself. Thou art my son. Today I've begotten thee. And Jesus says, behold, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I have come to do thy will. So we have an agreement between the father and the son here. And the son has fulfilled his obligations. He has received. He has been victorious on the cross. He said to tell us die. That was to his father. All right. And the father says, I will pay my vows. What is he now entitled to? He is now entitled to glory, honor, dominion above anything he'd ever had before. 
We're going to start to expand our thinking related to the relationship between the Father and the Son here. So from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. There's a brand new relationship for human suffering now. And it's all different because now there's a victorious Savior seated at the right hand of the Father. We have an advocate now. We have an intercessor. We've got a high priest who's able to intercede for us. He's able to have compassion for us because he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. What is it Glenn's been teaching us on Sunday nights? The, the purpose for his incarnation, that he, might, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest on our behalf in the things pertaining to God. And we see this here. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. Had He been faithless at the cross, none of this could have been fulfilled. None of this could have been fulfilled. This was the lie Satan offered. Satan said, oh, I'll give you all these kingdoms. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus said, no. Victory on the cross in order for these verses to be reality. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. They will bow down before him, before Jesus. The one who could not keep his soul alive. The one who had to lay down his soul. The one who had to offer it up. Payment for our redemption. He who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Now start to understand church is not known in in the Old Testament uh, and other issues here. Posterity will serve him. We're talking about descendants. We're talking about people not even yet born, which you see in verse 31. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it all right so there's a coming generation and then there's a people who will be born and uh, that takes a lot of work because is that referring to one in the same group is that the church or is that referring to two different groups i think that the coming generation is the church and that the people who will be born are the thousand generations of those who will glorify jesus christ in the new heavens and on the new earth in the dispensation of the fullness of time but that's uh, a bit more than we can handle today The point is that the desire of the Lord was to accomplish everything the Father assigned for him to do. And so when he says, with lust I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. I mean, why is this one different? How many times has he had Passover with these guys? Probably more times than he can count, right? Well, at least three and a half years of earthly ministry, okay? Um, That's true. He didn't know the disciples prior to calling them. So he's had three of these. This is now his fourth. Why is this one different? Because this one, not only is going to partake of Passover, he's going to introduce communion, and then he's going to go out and be the Passover. Okay? This is the one. This is the one. And then, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Now, this is interesting because we would be tempted to say, well, it's fulfilled the very next day. It's fulfilled tomorrow when he's on the cross. But he says, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And remember, the kingdom was rejected. And so, yes, the cross uh, fulfills all of the typology, but when does the benefit of this get applied to the nation of Israel? When is the kingdom going to be brought to this earth? Not until the second advent. So point D, never again 
is Passover to be observed until its kingdom fulfillment arrives. Never again is Passover to be observed until its kingdom fulfillment arrives. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom, it says. And, then to, and I find this interesting. Of course, the Jews observe Passover to this day. They continue to observe Passover. They observed it in 33 A.D. They observed it in 34 A.D. They observed it in 35 A.D. They kept observing it, having rejected the real Passover lamb. You ever ponder what that Saturday morning was all about? Um, I mean, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. Tradition reports that uh, <laughs> high priest was in there sewing that thing back up the next morning. Can you imagine? <laughs> and uh, interesting, isn't it? All right. It is finished. There should be no Passover observance. Now, to be fair, he does not ban anybody from doing so. He just says that he himself will not partake again. And so... I suppose if someone wanted to observe a Passover, and we do occasionally, we have demonstrations, for example. Uh, there are Christians who have a Jewish heritage, racial heritage, and so they, uh, they participate in Seder feasts and so forth as a matter of culture, and they do so on an evangelistic basis. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and the uh, Chosen People Ministry, Ariel Ministries, all these other groups, Jews for Jesus, they, they will perform Passover demonstrations in order to teach the reality of Christ. Are they wrong for doing so? Are they violating Luke 22? I don't think so. No. They've got grace and freedom. This is the age of freedom. All right? But Jesus says he himself is not ever again until he returns to this earth. I believe when it says fulfilled in the kingdom, that means that the kingdom has to be realized upon this earth. He's not up there in heaven taking, drinking wine. Uh, well, we'll talk about that. So, but let's notice, though, when the millennial kingdom arrives on earth, there is something new that's going to take place pertaining to Passover. And we're going to see this in Jeremiah 16. There's other passages, too. But Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah 23, these are the easiest for me to spot. So let's look at these. Jeremiah 16. And, uh, boy, some terrible things are going to happen. <laughs> oh, man. Don't get married. Jeremiah 16, 2. You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. Mm -mm. Thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land. Oh, my goodness. We already, the Lord already said, you know, when the day of the Lord is revealed, woe to those who are pregnant or nursing babies. Man, horrible times are coming up. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground. Carcasses. Yeah, here's a pleasant thing. All right. We should focus on this chapter and then go get some lunch. huh? <laughs> All right. Well, the point is, is that this is the tribulation that's going to take. This is the kind of ang agony and discipline and wrath that will be required in order to humble Israel and bring them to that point of repentance. Where they will 
look upon the Christ whom they pierced, where they will actually say, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord as a national repentance in accepting the return of their king. Now, um, verse 10, for what reason has the Lord declared all this? Well, you're going to get doctrine on why you're a nation of rebels and under divine wrath. And it's because your forefathers have forsaken me. And you too have done evil in verse 12, more than your forefathers. You're each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. In Christ's day, they thought they were great. He said, you're just like your forefathers. They built the tombs of the prophets and, and you decorate them. <laughs> and you're going to crucify the Christ. You're far worse than any of them. All right. So verse 13, I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night. I will grant you no favor. So here's their national destruction. But they have eternal promises. So verse 14, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, here's the new saying, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. So there's going to be a new commemoration. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. So understand this. Passover was a reminder that God brought them out of Egypt. But days are coming when bringing them out of the land of Egypt is not going to be the commemoration anymore. Now it's going to be God brought us from the four corners of the earth. God brought us from the land of the far north. God brought us from all the lands where they had been driven. In other words, their global dispersion. So after the second advent, Passover will have a new commemoration. Not just of deliverance from Egypt, but the global deliverance. Okay, And here's another difference. The, the deliverance from Egypt was from a promised Messiah who still had yet to accomplish Calvary. The, the millennial Passover will, feature, will commemorate a global regathering by the Christ who died on Calvary. Huge differences. All right. He brought them out of Egypt to bring them into a wilderness. He takes them from the four corners of the earth to bring them into a kingdom. What a glorious day this is going to be. All right. And then notice, in the context of this promise, behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. You think that verse was on his mind when he told Peter and James and John to leave their boats and become fishers of men? And then afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them. I think the fishermen are the disciples at first advent, and the hunters are the 144,000 of the uh, tribulation and second advent. My thought off the top of my head. I haven't taught Jeremiah verse by verse, but I'd like to someday. All right. That's chapter 16. It uh, gets restated again in chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. Verses 7 and 8. And uh, you'll note in this uh, passage... It's woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. So it's a shepherding passage with a lot of woe. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. 
And he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, verse 5, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And we know who branch is, right? One of the titles for Jesus. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. This didn't happen first advent. Okay. So is God a liar? No, this is going to happen second advent. We're of the... uh, we are of the blessed stewardship to be between the two advents and have the only fitting perspective to be able to distinguish past from future. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzitkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. So how many names is he going to have anyway? He's going to have Emmanuel, right? Going to have Yahweh Tzitkenu. Going to have... Uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to have another name which no one knows but him and the Father written on a white stone. He's going to have a lot of names and that's going to be pretty cool to see. All right. So therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us up, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I have driven them. Then they will live on their own soil. All right. Well, there's more to that, but these are the these are uh, the appropriate passages there. So Passover is going to have a whole new significance in the millennial kingdom and it will be observed again. He promised that I will drink it again when it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And that's what he's looking forward to. And um, so am I, for that matter. (laughs) Every time I take communion, I think. Hopefully this is our last time here on earth to uh, partake of the Lord's table. I, I, I want to feast from this other table. I want to feast with the Lord in, in glory. All right. There will be feasting in heaven too, by the way. I, I said something careless earlier about Jesus not drinking wine in heaven. But in the context of Luke 22, in the Passover feast, he's not going to pe- take Passover in heaven. He will take Passover when he's back on earth again on David's throne in uh, in the millennial kingdom. All right. What next? Point four. Luke adds details to this episode pertaining to the disciples' jealousy. Now, this is not contained in Matthew, not contained in Mark. It is unique to Luke's record of this upper room. But I think it's fitting because it's going to tie in real well with what John records in John 13 uh, as to the, uh, the foot washing. This is the, the conversation that uh, motivates the Lord to set that example of foot washing. So point four in the outline. Luke adds details to this episode pertaining to the disciples' jealousy. And they've been fighting, I mean, for days now. They've been going back and forth. Uh, you know, James and John brought their mother in on the on the thing, trying to get him assigned seating. And others tried to, they'd have these debates about doing this and doing that. Verse 24 says, there arose also a dispute. That's kind of an interesting word study. A dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Okay. Well, I, I my vote goes for Jesus. but see that's not where their argument was they were basically like okay he's jesus but of us 12 of us 12 okay and i can imagine that peter you know peter uh, felt that he was the leader he's always listed first every time the 12 are listed out there he's always the first one that jesus speaks to so he probably 
felt he had a pretty good claim. And uh, the others would point out, well, yeah, he speaks to you first because he's always yelling at you, right? He's always correcting you. He called you Satan, okay? So if he called you Satan, I don't think you're the, you're the, the greatest. John might say, you know, I'm the one that reclines on his breast. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think that makes me the greatest. So whatever their, their uh, argument was about, and it was a lengthy dispute. I think you can, you can glean a few things based on verb tenses and context and so forth as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. You know, understand how this world works. And who's in charge and what do they get out of being in charge? But it is not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become as like the youngest and the leader like the servant. So the Christian way of life is backwards compared to how the world thinks. God's wisdom is not the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. Uh, God says the world's wisdom is foolishness. And the world thinks God's wisdom is foolishness. So who's the fool? (laughs) And then the rhetorical question, who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And when you go to a restaurant and you sit down there, (laughs) who's in charge? Who's paying who, right? Who's, uh, Who's the servant? Who's being served? Who's in charge? Who's the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Remember, reclining, this is the Roman method of, uh, of um, eating and the, the couches that they would recline on and leaning on their left side and reaching up over their shoulder to where the food was prepared right there by their, by their head. And a meal that would last hours and conversation that would, uh, that would um, ensue. And this was not only, I mean, this, we understand it because meals are a fellowship time and a time to converse. But in the Roman world, it was that plus it was the uh, venue for um, cutting deals. It was the venue for business arrangements, political alliances. And by virtue of where you were, have I explained this to you already? By virtue of where you were, the, um, this is important, so let's, I mean, it's the background for this whole thing, so let's uh, take a look at this. If I can put this on. I forgot how to do this the other day, but then I came in here and practiced and reminded myself. <clears throat> All right. So, you end up with a table in the middle of the room where everything is, is placed. And, uh, you know, plates there, plates there, plates there, cups, goblets, all that stuff, okay? This end is left open because this is where the slaves are coming in to bring the, bring the food and clear the table and things like that. Then you have couches. Top, left, and right. All right, now, the head of the um, gathering, the the host of the house, the oikai despotes, the the lord of the of the house, uh, the the pater familias, the the man who had sovereignty among his household, would be right here. 
That's his spot. This is the place of honor. Okay. And he is, like I say, uh, you're reclining. So you've got, you know, this is, could be elevated with cushions or pillows or whatever. You've got lean up there on your left arm. And while you're, while you're leaning like that, then I, I should get a bed up here and demonstrate, but while you're leaning like that, then you're able to just reach over and grab your food and eat and drink and whatever you're doing. It's all just kind of done with your right hand while you're doing that. Now, <clears throat> he's not the only guy on this bed, on this couch. Okay? It was called triclinium. There were, there were different Latin terms for the dining room. And the, but why it was called triclinium was because you would have three. Three and three. You could have up to nine in this configuration. Oh, by the way, it was also, for some occasions... Uh, you would invite wives and daughters to come and, and they could sit here in chairs. They wouldn't be laying on the bed with the men, but they could be sitting there in the chairs. And for certain courses, maybe um, the, the wife of the house and the daughters would come in, particularly if this was the venue whereby the marriages were being arranged. Okay, So the girl would come in and sit and converse and then the, the girls would leave and the men could talk about um, you know, what the terms are for the, for the marriage alliance. Now, this is the guy who reclined on Jesus' breast. Okay? This is the guy. Because as, as you're laying on your left side and he's laying on his left side and the next guy's laying on his left side, if you're going to talk to the Lord, what are you going to do? You're going to lean over to your right. Exactly. And you're going to be face-to-face. I mean, you're going to be, you know, pretty, uh, pretty cozy there on that, uh, on that bed, on that couch. Okay? Now, so this is item of honor number one, item of honor number two. And even to be on the bed itself is the highest honor. This bed over here is the next highest. And so you've got three guys here. This is the least favorable, but at least you're in the room. Okay? And the reason why is because um, the Lord will likely not talk to you at all. If he had any purpose for talking to you, he would have put you here or here. All right? Uh, the fact that you're in the room means that he's at least honoring you by allowing you to eat with him. But he has nothing he really wants to talk to you about. So he put you behind his back and you're over here on this on this bed. And uh, and again, at least uh, <laughs> if you're on this bed, at least you want to be here to be in the best spot on this bed. OK, because that means you're above that guy and you're above that guy. OK, now. Believe it or not, insults in this seating arrangement led to a lot of murder <laughs> in the Roman Senate, you know, in the, in the, in uh, the politics of Rome and so forth. And, uh, you know, a man that walks in thinking that he's going to be here, if he gets put here, deliberately slighted, you know, maybe he's a man of great wealth. Maybe he's, he, he might even be in, in the ranks above the, the Lord of the house, but and for him to be put here, well, he'd probably just storm out angry and there would be, there would be blood in the, in the streets. So that's uh, a little bit of the background on that. Come back to PowerPoint. All right. So here they are reclining in a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And maybe it had to do with... Uh, now, now, this arrangement that was likely not in the upper room. They were, this was a Roman custom as opposed to a, a, a Jewish custom. But we don't know. We didn't know the, the nationality of the man of this house, where the upper room was prepared, where they were reclining, where they, 
Were they uh, seated in chairs? Were they at tables? Uh, Michelangelo, not Michelangelo, Leonardo thought they were all sitting on the same side of the table, which never made any sense to me. Uh, but how were they here on this night? We don't know. Now, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Rank is critical. Where you stand in social standing is critical. And that's, I think, lost. The founding of America was unique in the sense that it was uh, prohibited to have any titles, no nobility, no lordships. And we're all equal citizens under the law, theoretically, right? That uh, we don't have uh, a peerage over us with ranks, that we don't have dukes that are above earls, that are above barons, that are above knights, all right? This has been the way it's worked since the dawn of time, and our culture is rather the odd duck when it comes to certain things. Now, those who have authority of them are called benefactors. The client-master relationship here. If, if you were somebody's client and, uh, or, or somebody was your client, okay, understand how this works. Um, that meant that you were under their patronage. They were, you were their patron. They were your client. And so um, you would be expected to support what they're doing politically. If they're going to voice uh, if they're going to voice uh, an opinion on a, on a bill, you had to lend your support to it because you're their client. They're your patron. In exchange uh, for that support, you'll get certain benefits uh, financially and, and uh, in different ways. Benefactors. I'm the source of your benefit. Okay? Without me, you're nothing. All right? And so it becomes huge. And, and you, want, you want your own... Uh, network of clients beneath you to build your position up. You want to have the best patron you can and you want to support him as strongly as you can because if he falls, you're in, you're in a lot of trouble. Unless you can find some way to switch patrons. Not always possible. Alright. That's how the world works. Don't work according to the world's wisdom. Alright. Don't work according to the world's wisdom. It is not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you has become as the youngest. When you exhibit maximum humility, God the Father will give you the maximum reward. He is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So the judgment seat of Christ, we understand that humility is a rewardable trait. So point A, this was not their first such argument. <laughs> um, back in the Galilean ministry, episode 53 of the Galilean ministry. Disciples contend about greatness. We taught this already. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. Mark 9, 33 through 37. Luke 9, 46 through 48. Now, he used a different rebuke in that previous occasion. We'll just stay in Luke because it's nearby. Luke 9. And Luke's not confused. It's not like Matthew and Mark portrayed this argument early and then Luke portrayed this argument late. Luke actually recorded both arguments, the early one and the late one, and uh, recorded both of the Lord's rebukes, and they are different. In Luke 9, an argument started among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing what they were, that they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. He said, come here, kid, I need you. And there's his visual aid, okay? Didn't have PowerPoint back then, but he got a kid and said, stand here said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever um, 
receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And so did they respond to that? Did they learn? No. They're still arguing on the night he's betrayed. They're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. I find that interesting. In this episode, he rebukes them again, but he does so with a uh, table servant illustration. And there, there was probably a waiter in the room when he was t- t- telling him this story. Probably pointed to the guy, right? I wonder if the name might have even been Bob. My, my quest, I'm still looking for Bob in the Bible. But he says, the waiter. You want to be the waiter. You want to come to serve, not to be served. So the Lord's response this time is to highlight the prideful Gentile practices. To highlight prideful Gentile practices. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. What would you expect? They're Gentiles. All right. What do you expect a dog to do? <laughs> okay. They're going to act like dogs. And, uh, you know, they're going to figure out which one's the alpha dog. They're going to figure out, uh, you know, that's what Gentiles do. That's what dogs do. But it's not this way with you. It's not this way with you. Speaking to his disciples. So, you know, this is part of what comes about when we evaluate uh, our, um, you know, is there, is there a difference in a, in a Christian businessman as opposed to an unbelieving businessman and how he runs his business, how he lives his life? Of course, there ought to be. We ought to be reflections of that humility. We're not, uh, we're not in, the, in the corporate uh, dog-eat-dog world to, to tear somebody down so we can get ahead. Things of that nature. The world knows how tables work. Point C. Point C. The world knows how tables work. The standing ones serve the seated ones. I mean, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. The standing ones serve the seated ones, of course. But Jesus turns the tables, right? Jesus is ono. The honor and glory comes in serving. There will come a time to recline at the table, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. You know, and I think of uh, believers that want to uh, start walking in millennial Christianity today. We're not there yet. You know, and, and they get sadly discouraged when things aren't getting better. No, things are getting worse. What do you expect? God said they would. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. It's not our time to recline yet. We'll, we'll recline. That day is coming. But right now we're serving. And the, and the course of our earthly mortality existence is to serve, not to be served. To me, this is awesome. You know, who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? That is a no-brainer in any... A little kid can figure that out. And yet when he turns the table to say, no, it's the other way around with you. We're here to serve. And this is the message. As I said, when, when you do the harmony, you then go from here over to John 13 and you watch him um, washing the disciples' feet. <laughs> so he not only tells them this doctrine, he then illustrates this doctrine and says, what do you think of this? All you prideful arguers about which one of you is the greatest. Okay. And so we see it there. All right. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. As one who serves. 
I was watching a video on YouTube about the difference between Jesus and Muhammad. Like night and day, right? <laughs> you couldn't have more opposite extremes. You know, Jesus wasn't a, a bandit and a, and a pirate and a robber and, and a kidnapper and a slaver and a rapist and a child molester. All right. And this is all, this is the documented history of the life of Muhammad by Muslim sources. Any Muslim will tell you this. So you have followers imitating the one that they're told is the greatest example for imitation, Muhammad. And what do you expect? But we are followers of one who came to serve, who humbled himself to the point of death. And who is it that we're told in our scriptures is the highest model to follow? It's Jesus being imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as I have loved you. Okay. And so, uh, anyway, it's a very interesting uh, apologetics debate. All right. So, answering the mythology that, oh, it's all the same. Are you kidding me? How can you say that? All right. I think I'm done. Is there another one? No, there's another one. All right. Point D. That's probably the last one. Yep. Point D. In order to be seated and served in the kingdom, the Lord expects loyal service here in time. In order to be seated and served in the kingdom, the Lord expects loyal service here in time. He says, it's not this way with you. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as the, my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. In other words, you're going to be on the couch here with me. You want that high position? You want to be on couch one, couch two, couch three? <clears throat> well, then you're going to stand by me in the trials. You may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this gets important, too, and um, we can expand upon this, perhaps. Um, there is a unique reward that is given to the twelve apostles of the Lamb, Okay. They're going to sit on 12 thrones. It's not a church age reward. Don't confuse this. These, these disciples are, are, are in a unique spot because they are serving the Lord and they're bearing fruit during the dispensation of Israel. And they're going to have rewards pertaining to their, their work in the dispensation of Israel. Now, after the day of Pentecost, of course, they're going to cross into the church and they're going to continue as apostles and they're going to have church age rewards as well. Like you and I have church age rewards. Okay. But you and I do not have Israel rewards because we were not alive on earth serving the Lord as apostles of the Lamb. Okay, So Paul and Barnabas and James and Jude, those guys are apostles, but they're not apostles of the Lamb. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these twelve, kick out Judas, add Matthias, the twelve are apostles of the Lamb before the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. And they... Part of their rewards uh, in the dispensation of Israel is to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, one apostle of the Lamb per tribe. Okay. Now, it does not reflect, by the way, what tribe they were from. Most of them are from Judah. And then when you have brothers, they're from the same tribe anyway. So Peter and Andrew are from the same tribe. James and John are from the same tribe. The bulk of them are from the tribe of Judah anyway. We don't know the tribe of, of 
you know, Matthew was called Levi. Was that his tribe? So um, anyway, we don't know about the other disciples. They were all Jewish, but we don't know what tribe they were from. But the 12 apostles of the Lamb will judge 12 tribes of Israel. It's not a church age reward. It's a dispensation of Israel reward. That's why there's a difference between the 12 and all the apostles, the later apostles. Okay. The Lord expects loyal service here in time. He expects chesed. He expects loyal service. Hosea 6.6. And it's interesting as he preached on this at least twice to the Pharisees and they never got it. I think he actually preached this three times to the Pharisees. Hosea 6.6. Say, Hosea, who in the world? That's a minor prophet. Who reads those? Jesus said it was important. And since Hosea is the Hebrew word for Jesus, I think we probably ought to pay attention. Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Think that's any significance for your Christology? That we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on and know the Lord. We're here to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same as Old Testament believers were. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. We don't know when he's going to come, but we're sure that he is. Just as sure as the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Jesus is coming. And then he responds, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. They had talked about the dawn coming, so he uses the same metaphor. And he says, you know what happens when the sun rises? The morning dew just melts away. And your loyalty is a lot like that. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. You know, think of Samuel chopping up Agag and sending pieces of, of Agag all over the land. As, you know, they didn't have PowerPoint back then, so he chops up Agag and sends pieces of Agag all over the place. He said, look at this. Learn this doctrine. Okay. I think most of the prophets had ministries like that. They were tough guys. Samuel comes to Bethlehem and Jesse's uh, and the townspeople are uh, pretty nervous. You know, what are you doing here? <laughs> Welcome. Why are you here? He says, well, Jesse, I'm having dinner at your house. All right. The judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. That four, verse six, here's the explanation. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If all you have is phony religion, if all you have is phony religion and you don't have the loyal service, the heart of love, serving God, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if all you have is phony religion, these empty sacrifices, God says He takes no pleasure in that. He's sick, in, he's sick of that. He delights in loyalty. And so we see this. I've got two minutes left. We see this in Matthew 12. We see this in Matthew um, 15. See this in Matthew 23. Maybe somebody running Logos could tell me the exact verses. But <laughs> Hosea 6.6 6 and the citations in Matthew. Matthew. <clears throat> 
There it is. Matthew 12, verses 6 and 7. Okay. Okay. So Matthew 12, and they're eating grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are, look, your disciples do what it's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You're breaking the external religion. Okay. He says, have you not read what David did? He ate bread that was supposed to be just for the priests. David wasn't a priest. Have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests break the Sabbath and are innocent? Every Sabbath, the priests break the Sabbath because they're working on the Sabbath, right? You know, every pastor works on Sunday. (laughs) Every priest works on the Sabbath. But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Understand the reality behind the the shadow typology. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocents. If you had known. If you had known. And that's because uh, I think he had previously... Was there a previous example on that? I'm going to get my own Libronics. How about that? Matthew 9.13 was the first use. And he tells them, go and learn what this means. In chapter 9. Go and learn what this means. So he ordered them to do that. Pharisees are all mad. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? So he says, go and learn what this means. In chapter 9. Obviously they didn't. Because what what happens again in chapter 12? If you had learned what this means. (laughs) If you had obeyed your, done your homework when I gave you that rebuke back in chapter 9. You wouldn't be uh, criticizing my disciples here in chapter 12 for eating the grain on the Sabbath. All right, I think there's another use in uh, chapter 18 or thereabouts. But anyway, you got the point. You got the point. The Lord expects loyal service here in time. Functioning in the reality, loving the Lord our God. And He's not impressed with... um, with, with 4,000 sermons preached if they were done for the wrong reasons, if they were done for the wrong motivations, if, uh, if it's just uh, some pastor trying to make a splash or impress people with the number of times he teaches Bible class. All right. Now, if the motivation's right, that's what gets rewarded. That's what gets rewarded. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for what we're learning here in this upper room. And Father, uh, I mean, this happened nearly 2,000 years ago, Father, but the more we study it, the more it seems like, uh, like we're right there. We're in that room. We're seeing this uh, unfold. And Father, it's becoming very clear to each one of us what is expected. And I pray, Father, that we would be reclining on Jesus' breast, that we would be in fellowship with our Savior. We would not be boastful deniers like Peter or, or flat-out traitors like Judas. Father, uh, open the eyes of our understanding, mold us and shape us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.